This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Reverend Sir, your kind advice and friendly cautions are a favor that shall be always gratefully remembered. And I must beg leave to assure you that my happiness, which you and your brother so ardently wish for, will be greatly augmented by both your enjoyments of the like blessing. I have been as particular to my father as I thought necessary for this time, as I send him an account of the institution, etc., etc., of the college wrote by Mr. Blair, the gentleman formerly elected president of this place. I am perfectly pleased with my present situation, and the prospect before me of three years' confinement, however terrible it may sound, has nothing in it but what will be greatly alleviated by the advantages I hope to derive from it. I am, sir your obliged friend and humble servant, James Madison. In this earliest letter that we have written by James Madison from August 10th, 1769, we already see some of the personality traits that would come to epitomize the man who would become the fourth president of the United States. Before we dive into his early days and upbringing, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. I'd like to thank Sean from the American History Podcast for giving voice to Madison. Sean has invited me on his show a couple of times in the past, and it is always a pleasure to collaborate with him. As in this podcast, Sean does deep dives into various topics in American history, ranging from the early troubled relations between the U.S. and Mexico to World War II in the Pacific. As someone with a passion for the details of history, you can't go wrong by checking out the American History Podcast by going to the American History Podcast, that's all one word, dot com, or by searching for the American History Podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found. I'll also have a link to Sean's website on the source notes page for this episode, which can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Longtime listeners of the podcast already know this, but for those of you who may be joining us for the first time with this episode, I feel that I need to issue a caveat before we begin. This podcast is deliberately called the Presidency's Plural of the United States. While, of course, I have to spend a good amount of time talking about the individuals who have thus far held the office of president, my focus is on something more. It's on how the institution shifts from one term to the next and the various individuals and events that impact it and that, in turn, impact American history. Thus, the two pre-presidency episodes are not intended to be an all-encompassing biography of James Madison. Rather, I'm using this opportunity to highlight certain key events and influences on Madison leading up to his assuming office on March 4, 1809 that would, in turn, impact his presidency. There are numerous biographies of his life that I would recommend and which can be found in the source notes page for this episode. Likewise, as Madison has been a part of the narrative of the podcast since the beginning, we've already covered many of the key points in his life from 1789 on. So especially in the next episode, there are going to be places where we go rather quickly in order to avoid being repetitive. 
but that did have an impact on his path to the presidency. I do encourage you, if you haven't already, to listen to the first three narrative series of the podcast to learn more about those moments. However, there are some points that will be shared next episode about that period of two decades that didn't necessarily relate to those respective presidencies, but that are important to know as we transition to Madison's presidency. So don't worry. There will be some new bits of knowledge in the latter part of the next episode for our long-term listeners as well. With that said, and without further ado, let's begin our examination of James Madison's pre-presidency years. Before we can talk about Madison's life, we have to take a few moments to understand his family and the plantation that is so intertwined with the history of the Madisons, as well as the families and individuals that they enslaved there over the course of a century and a quarter. The Madison family's connection to what became the state of Virginia started back in 1653 with future President Madison's great-great-grandfather, John Madison, who spelled the family name with two Ds. This Madison patented 600 acres of land that year, and by the time of his death around three decades later, he had secured 1,300 additional acres. With subsequent generations, the family's land holdings would continue to grow, and later generation of Madisons, along with altering the spelling of the family name to its current formation, would begin to climb the social ladder in the colony as they began serving in public offices. The future president's grandfather, Ambrose Madison, extended his land holdings beyond the Tidewater and into the Piedmont area of Virginia, thanks to a gift from his father-in-law in 1723. However, before Madison could think about moving his young family from where they lived on the Middle Peninsula along the York River, the land in the Piedmont would have to be developed. For that, Ambrose Madison turned to the people he enslaved. As noted by historian Douglas Chambers, quote, clearing new land for cultivation was arduous work, and given that these western quarters were absentee-owned, it is likely that the slaves relied as much on their own knowledge and skills as on the direction of their overseers. From the mid-1720s until 1732, around 10 to 15 enslaved individuals worked on the estate that was then known as Mount Pleasant to clear the land for planting, build the basic infrastructure for working farms, and build, quote, a relatively permanent house for the overseer, their own cabins, and other structures such as barns and sheds. Sometime in March or April 1732, Ambrose moved his family and the enslaved people who had been compelled to work in their household beforehand to the Mount Pleasant settlement. The impact of this move would have a ripple effect beyond the family. For the enslaved individuals already at Mount Pleasant, as noted by Chambers, they had previously likely, quote, claimed some degree of autonomy or informal authority as they had been distant from their enslaver. But now, Ambrose would be in a position to exert more control over their lives. Further, Ambrose, as described by Madison biographer Michael Singer, quote, was an imperious, hard man who was likely an equally hard master of his slaves. His roughhouse ways were legendary in what soon became Orange County. Ambrose was grasping and inquisitive and ruthless. One can imagine Ambrose micromanaging everything in the plantation operations and the stress and turmoil this would cause for the enslaved population in the area. Though rather isolated, the enslaved community in the area did not stop at the boundary of Ambrose's land. Again, from Chambers, this was, quote, a larger neighborhood of slaves. The slave community was not bounded by plantations, but extended across the landscape and encompassed the slaves of masters 
who themselves came from the same neighborhood along the Mattapanai River. For the slaves, this meant that they lived in a larger community composed of dispersed compounds in which people commonly expected to travel and visit and marry beyond their own immediate settlement. Whatever plans Ambrose had for Mount Pleasant and the growing community in the Piedmont, soon after the Madison families moved west, those plans came to an abrupt end. In the summer of 1732, Ambrose fell ill with what Sanger described as, quote, a lingering summertime illness of several months before he finally succumbed to death on August 24th at the age of 36. Within a week of his death, three enslaved individuals named Dido, Turk, and Pompey were arrested and charged with murdering Ambrose Madison through the use of poison. Madison had enslaved Dido and Turk, but Pompey was enslaved by a neighboring planter in the area, Joseph Hawkins. On September 6th, after a short deliberation, all three were found guilty, but only Pompey was sentenced to death by hanging. Turk and Dido, meanwhile, quote, were ordered to be whipped with 29 lashes on their bare backs at the common whipping post, and thereafter to be discharged. We can only speculate as to why Dido and Turk were spared a sentence of death. Chambers postulates that the justices either believe Pompey supplied the poison which killed Ambrose or was the primary actor in the conspiracy, while Sanger suggests that the justices, knowing of Madison's harshness, may have felt that the two people enslaved by him deserved some leniency. It should be noted that there is no way to confirm whether or not Ambrose was in fact poisoned or if this was a white panic response to explain Ambrose's unexpected and drawn-out death. Whatever the case, Chambers, in his study of the enslaved individuals at what became Montpelier and their ties to the larger enslaved community of Virginia, as well as their ancestral ties to the Igbo people of West Africa, points to this event as a quote-unquote charter event of Montpelier and asserts that, quote, it is likely that the central message of the murder about the limits of the master's power and of the slave's resistance to it echoed for a long time among the descendants of both free and enslaved at Montpelier. The future president's father, also named James Madison, and the eldest son of Ambrose and Francis Taylor Madison, was only nine years old when his father passed away. The family's estate, including the 29 individuals that Ambrose had enslaved, was left in Francis's hands to administer until James came of age. Francis leaned on her Taylor family connections, in particular her younger brother Erasmus, to help in managing affairs on the plantation until James grew old enough in the early 1740s when he could start learning the business and step into a leadership role. In the 1750s, James began a major rebuilding and expansion effort at the estate. Due to his serving as the trustee of his brother-in-law's estate for his underage niece, Mary Willis, as well as his marriage to Nellie Conway, James had a sufficient growth in the enslaved population at his plantation that he did not have to participate in the transatlantic slave trade in order to have the workforce needed for his plans. This did, however, mean that the enslaved community in the area, following the addition of the people enslaved under the Conway and Willis estates, became quite close-knit. Even when ownership of individuals changed from one member of the family to the next, by and large, they stayed in the larger neighborhood. As with any enslaved community, though, there was the constant threat and uncertainty of not having complete autonomy. Within the Madison estate, James practiced a rotational system of labor that, quote, 
disrupted the slave's community life. In 1763, an even greater upheaval came when those enslaved under the Willis estate were forced to move to Spotsylvania, Virginia, upon the marriage of Mary Willis and control of them shifting from James Madison to Willis's new husband. Coinciding with growth and change at the estate, James and Nellie Madison's domestic life would change as they started to have children. James Madison Jr. was born on March 16, 1751, at the plantation of Nellie's mother and stepfather in King George County on the Rappahannock River. For her first pregnancy, it seems that Nellie had turned to her Conway family for support in the birth and early days of being a new mother. After James Jr. was baptized and the season changed so that, quote, the rivers were less swollen and the spring mud had dried, mother and son traveled back to Orange County. Nothing is known of James Jr.'s early days, though with his father's growing wealth and prominence in the community, it can be imagined that it was a rather comfortable experience. In the mid-1750s, construction of what is now the Big House at Montpelier began. The site of the Big House, located a third of a mile northeast of the original house, which was located closer to the slave quarters, is, quote, at the foot of the nearby Wooded Mountain and positioned the dwelling to take advantage of the sweeping view westward to the Blue Ridge. We can imagine that, just as he was in his namesake's later life, James Madison Sr. loomed large over his eldest son in his early days. Douglas Chambers provides the following description of James Sr. Quote, All indications are that James Madison Sr. was someone who demanded respect. With the completion of the big house around 1760, there would now be an architectural monument, quote, to reflect Colonel Madison's growing prominence in local affairs. Operations at the Madison estate continued to grow, and Chambers credits James Sr.'s approach, asserting that, quote, though the balance of the slaves would have had little personal contact with him, since Madison always relied on overseers and perhaps enslaved headmen or drivers, collectively, they may have forged a grand compromise. Madison's success may have made him more comfortable with a new strategy for controlling his slaves, using a carrot of relative stability and communal residence, along with the stick of threatened separation. Meanwhile, the family's expansion continued to pace with the birth of Francis Madison in 1753 and Ambrose Madison in 1755. Four more Madison children who survived to adulthood were born in the two subsequent decades, Nellie in 1760, William in 1762, Sarah in 1764, and finally Francis, E.S. at the end, not to be confused with second-born son Francis with an I.S. at the end, in 1774. As was often the case at the time, the Madisons also had children that were either stillborn or passed away in their childhood. Though the Madisons were more well-off than their neighbors, they did still face their share of anxieties. Being in a less established part of Virginia, there were concerns in the area about attacks by Native peoples, particularly during the Seven Years' War, or, as it is more commonly known in the U.S., the French and Indian War. Likewise, one can imagine that smallpox outbreaks in Orange County in the early 1760s were a source of disquietude for James Sr. and Nellie. However, life went on for the family. As with other Virginia planter families, it is likely that for James Jr., or Jimmy, as he was called by his parents, education began with his mother and possibly even his paternal grandmother. He may also have received instruction from local Anglican clergymen 
a local schoolmaster, and a dancing master. As speculated by Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum, quote, Though James Madison's early schooling probably amounted to little more than instruction in reading, writing, and arithmetic, if he showed early the bookish inclination always evident in his adult life, we may imagine that as he learned to read, he devoured almost every scrap of printed matter on the family farm. In 1762, James Jr.'s education would take a leap forward as he was enrolled in a school north of the Mattapani River in eastern Virginia. Singer describes Madison's reception at the school as follows, quote, In the boisterous den, Madison was greeted by a teacher of warmth and evident dedication to the boys. Donald Robertson had an independence of thought and courageous spirit that immediately set him apart from the stuffy men so common in Virginia's merchant circles. Robertson guided Jamie, as he referred to James Jr., through lessons in Greek and Latin, but, as noted by Singer, it seems like Madison took a particular interest in, quote, the personal essays that Robertson assigned. In reading from the memoirs of the Cardinal de Ritz, Madison made multiple notes that give us insight into his developing worldview, including, but not limited to, quote, nothing is more subject to delusion than piety. One is oftener deceived by mistrusting people than by confiding in them. There is a critical minute in everything, and the masterpiece of good conduct is to perceive it and take hold of it. And all the world is and will be forever deceived in things which flatter their passions. From French essayist Michel de Montaigne, Madison gleaned the following insights. Quote, People who are too tender of their reputation and too deeply piqued by slander are too conscious to themselves of some inward infirmity. A reputation grounded on true virtue is like the sun that may be clouded but not extinguished. And our passions are like torrents which may be diverted but not obstructed. After five years at the Robertson School, Jimmy returned home to begin two years of tutelage under the Reverend Thomas Martin, the rector of the local Anglican church that the Madisons attended. Martin lived with the Madisons at the time and taught some of Jimmy's younger siblings as well. While we don't know for certain what Reverend Martin's lessons entailed, we do know that he helped influence a decision that would shape the future course of the young Madison's life. Most of the Sons of Virginia planners went to the College of William and Mary for higher education, as had George Washington to earn his surveyor's license, as well as Thomas Jefferson. However, James Madison Sr. had his concerns about that institution, as the majority of instructors there were wedded to, quote, the rigid classical outlines that had guided generations of British students. Reverend Martin, meanwhile, being embedded in the domestic world of the Madisons, was able to speak to his alma mater, the College of New Jersey, or, as it is known today, Princeton. The College of New Jersey, by this point, quote, had earned a reputation for teaching integrity, moral probity, and intellectual quality to a small segment of the northern state's leading men. Meanwhile, the college's recently installed president, John Witherspoon, was regarded as being an outspoken reformer. Given the efforts that James Sr. had taken thus far to educate his oldest son, it's clear that he had ambitions for his namesake that exceeded what he had been able to achieve thus far. While Colonel Madison, as James Sr. was known, had been able to achieve influence in Orange County, and indeed, 
may have been the most influential leader in the county, that was as far as his influence extended. As noted by Chambers when discussing Colonel Madison's failed attempt at dictating the appointment of a new sheriff in 1769, quote, he, Madison, was not one of the first gentlemen of Virginia. While sending his son to William and Mary may have inculcated him within the Virginia social circles, there were also indications that the old order was about to be disrupted. The furor in the British North American colonies over the Stamp Act suggested that there were due to be reforms in the relationship between the colonies and the home country. And if James Madison Jr. was to be a leader of this age to come, he would need to think beyond the limits of what had been to date in order to envision and be a part of what was to come. Through Reverend Martin's influence, it became increasingly clear that the College of New Jersey would provide Jimmy with, as described by historian Noah Feldman, quote, an entree into the European Republic of Letters and the ideas of the Enlightenment, as well as a close-knit community of smart, ambitious young men intent on forming lasting friendships and getting ahead in the world. As a testament to the impact this decision would have on the young Madison, Feldman, in his biography of Madison, skips over the earlier parts of his life and starts the biography with his arrival at Princeton, New Jersey in 1769. Before we dive into that, though, we must discuss one other consideration which helped sway the decision for where Jimmy would pursue higher education. Madison himself would later note that his family considered the climate of where both William and Mary and the College of New Jersey were located in the decision-making process. Even at this early age, it seems that Madison's health was considered poor, and he would be considered throughout his life to have what was described as, quote-unquote, a poor constitution. We'll discuss this in more depth shortly, but I wanted to point out that the Madisons saw, quote, the climate at William and Mary as unfavorable to the health of persons from the mountainous region, while Princeton, New Jersey, being in a higher elevation, was a more favorable locale for their young scholar. Thus, in the summer of 1769, James Jr. set out with the Reverend Martin's brothers, Jonathan and Alexander, as well as Sawney, a person enslaved by the Madisons, bound for Princeton. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the time of his arrival, Madison embraced the opportunities presented to him at Princeton. Shortly after his arrival, he spoke with the college's president, John Witherspoon, about his desire, quote, to finish the three years at Princeton in only two years, and requested that he be administered early exams to allow him to skip the first-year curriculum if he passed. Madison's request was granted, and he passed his exam, bypassing one year's worth of studies that he had already mastered. He then partnered with a fellow student named Joseph Ross, quote, to spend over 10 hours a day together studying, and the two pushed themselves to sleep as little as humanly possible and still function, at times sleeping only, quote, five hours a night for weeks. Madison's academic rigor and determination greatly impressed Witherspoon as well as his fellow students. Jimmy, as his classmates took to calling him, was known for, quote, his sincerity 
his enthusiasm for ideas, his loyalty, and his defenseless, contagious hilarity. His determination to progress at a rapid pace through his studies did not come at the expense of his building close relationships with his fellow students. He even helped form a debating society with William Bradford, who would go on to be the second U.S. Attorney General, and Philip Furneaux, who would go on to found the National Gazette and be a thorn in the side of President Washington. As noted by historian Noah Feldman, the quote, total commitment to a common project form a paradigm for Madison's friendships that would persist throughout his life. During the time Madison was at college in Princeton, he also had his classmates, the future Vice President Aaron Burr and future Supreme Court Justice Henry Brockholz Livingston. The connections he made at this time in his life would be pivotal for what lay ahead for him, though, of course, James could not have known at the time the role his fellow students would play, both in his life and in the future of America. As Madison barreled towards graduation, he would find that his life and post-college prospects would be influenced by circumstances out of his control. Word would come to campus on a regular basis about the increased tensions between the colonies on the East Coast and the British government. As often happens on college campuses in the modern era, the students at the College of New Jersey did occasionally protest on campus, and Madison would report back on these events to his father. As the colonies progressed forward towards a new era, Madison would find that, despite the life-changing experience he had had in Princeton, he was being drawn back to his old life in Orange County, Virginia. His father wrote to him during his last year with a vague request for him, quote, to find a friend willing to come down to Orange County to tutor his sisters and brothers. Madison soon realized, especially when he could not draw out any details about a salary or an expected duration for this tutor, that he was being voluntold that he would be the tutor for his younger siblings. Finally, the fateful day came. On the last Wednesday of September 1771, James Madison graduated from the College of New Jersey. Due to his nerves and anxiety, Madison was the only one of the graduating class of 12 not to attend the ceremony, as he was too ill. He managed to post father off for a little bit so that he could engage in additional studies with President Witherspoon. But in April 1772, the time came for Jimmy to return home. As described by Singer, quote, he began the long trip home with a sense of dread, a familiar anxiety closing in on him. As is a common experience for college students in the modern era, Madison naturally felt constrained having to return to his parents' home rather than start up an independent life for himself. But Singer alludes to the fact that there may have been more to it than the standard fits and starts of adjusting to adulthood. Singer, in his study of Madison's early life and career, asked the question, quote, Did Madison, as a young boy, experience some trauma, whether emotional, sexual, or physical? We cannot know. Perhaps he had no childhood trauma at all, but he certainly acted as if he did. With the ailment that Madison suffered periodically throughout his life, Singer notes that, quote, the fits seemed to arrive with any activity that made him feel self-conscious or anxious, particularly when he needed to seem successful in front of others, and most particularly when his father or other men were watching. Thus, with his return to his father's home, Madison fell into a pessimistic mood, 
writing William Bradford in November 1772 that he was, quote, too dull and infirm now to look out for any extraordinary things in this world, and that he felt that he did, quote, not expect a long or healthy life. His emotional state was not helped by the news of the untimely death of his study mate, Joseph Ross. After a year and a half of floundering, though, Madison slowly but surely started to emerge and took a few initial steps that would help craft the foundations of his career. On December 1st, 1773, Madison wrote to William Bradford asking him to provide a copy of, quote, the organizing laws of Pennsylvania, and particularly asked about laws related to religion. Madison begged the question to his friend, quote, is an ecclesiastical establishment absolutely necessary to support civil society in a supreme government? Increasingly, religious tolerance and the status of the Anglican Church as the state religion of the colony was a topic of conversation in Virginia. In the spring of 1774, the theoretical conversation began to have definite consequences as five Baptists were arrested in neighboring Culpeper County, quote, for the crime of preaching without a required license, a charge that barely disguised what was seen as the real crime of, quote, challenging the Anglicans. Madison traveled north to visit Bradford in Philadelphia, as well as drop off his younger brother, William, at a preparatory school in Princeton in May, and he used the time away from Orange County to spur his thoughts on how he could serve as a champion for religious minorities in Virginia. Initially, his mind turned to the study of law. As was common at the time, when there were few formal educational programs devoted to legal studies, Madison picked up a copy of a noted legal text by William Salkeld and started reading and making notes. He quickly realized that his legal studies were quote-unquote coarse and dry, and at some point in 1774, abandoned his study of law. His father attempted to provide him with another career path in September 1774 when he gave James Jr., quote, 200 acres of land near Montpelier. Becoming a planner, however, did not draw the young man's interest any more than becoming a lawyer did. Though Madison was not interested in legal practice, he was quite interested in government and the making of laws, and he would soon have new opportunities to advance towards a career in public service. Answering the call, the First Continental Congress to establish, quote, a committee of safety to enforce the ban on trade approved by the Congress. Leaders in Orange County in December 1774 elected members to an 11-person county committee of safety. James Madison Jr. was chosen as one of the committeemen, the youngest member of the committee by far. Now, his election was helped by his father's prominence in the community, and indeed, James Madison Sr. would serve as chairman of the committee. James Jr. threw himself into the work, and as described by his biographer Ralph Ketchum, quote, Madison obviously had no compunction about summary measures against those who defied the will of the committee. Likewise, with the new year of 1775 dawning, Madison joined his father in working to prepare the local militia for the possibility of conflict. That summer, though, the young man would suffer from one of his occasional fits while drilling with the militia while his father, the head of the local militia, watched on. As described by Singer, quote, performing before his father and the other men, Madison was suddenly struck by an overwhelming self-consciousness. As he moved from musket practice to actual company maneuvers, 
he anxiously felt a wrenching stomachache begin. Suddenly, he was unable to stand. Mortified, he then collapsed. The other men were forced to help him off the field. After this embarrassing episode, Madison opted to steer clear of the battlefield, but he used his time afterwards to prepare himself to enter another arena. Madison had ordered books, quote, on liberty and political theory and spent his time in the latter part of 1775 learning all he could from them. As the situation in Virginia grew ever more tense between the colonists and the royal governor, Lord Dunmore, in 1776, a call was sent out for a convention to meet in Williamsburg in May. Colonel Madison used his influence to have his son, James Jr., chosen as one of the two delegates to the convention from Orange County. When the convention assembled in May, though leaders such as George Washington, Richard Henry Lee, and Thomas Jefferson were already occupied with other work for the Patriot cause, Madison would find himself in the company with many other current as well as up-and-coming Virginia leaders, including Robert Carter Nicholas, John Blair, Edmund Randolph, and Thomas Mann Randolph Sr. One leader, however, was unmatched in prominence at the convention for being an unabashed firebrand, Patrick Henry. The man who had proclaimed at the Second Virginia Convention the year earlier, quote, give me liberty or give me death, arrived in Williamsburg for the Fifth Convention, quote, wearing his homespun persona, buckskin, yarn stockings, unpowdered wig. Henry made his presence known over the next couple of months of proceedings and was ultimately chosen as the first governor of the new state of Virginia. Madison, while playing a decidedly more low-key part in the convention's proceedings, did make a key contribution towards his cause celebre, freedom of religion. When George Mason drafted a Declaration of Rights and it was presented to the convention, Madison noticed a key defect and rose to propose an amendment. As described by Michael Singer, quote, In Mason's draft, Conscience had merely impelled an individual to plead with his government for religious toleration. But Madison's extraordinary new idea recognized an individual's private conscience with a new political right to the full and free exercise of religion. Though the convention made some other alterations to the language before approving the Virginia Declaration of Rights, the heart of Madison's change remained in place and would have a substantial ripple effect over time in promoting the idea of freedom of religion. Madison and the rest of his fellow delegates proclaimed themselves to be the new temporary state house of delegates, with the permanent delegates being elected six months hence. This temporary state house, however, decided to meet back in Williamsburg in October to do what work needed to be done in the meantime as the new state government was getting up and running. Thus, When Madison made the trek to the coastal capital in October, he threw himself into the work and, quote, was appointed to the Committee of Privileges and Elections, the Committee for Religion, and three special committees. Though devoted to the work, Madison still had to be elected to a full term. While it was thought that the son of Colonel James Madison Sr. would be a shoe-in to represent Orange County, James Jr. bucked tradition, which was to ply voters with liquor at the polling places on Election Day in order to secure their votes. As noted by Singer, quote, Madison had always found the practice beneath Virginia's dignity and his own concept of public service. Thus, he refused to do it. 
Needless to say, when Election Day came on April 24, 1777, Madison lost the election. Again from Singer, quote, He had erroneously believed that the spirit of the revolution would support a more chaste mode for elections, but he had collided with old habits that were too deeply rooted to be suddenly reformed. Madison would not make the same mistake again. In the meantime, Madison resumed his role as a private citizen, but not for long. In November 1777, when the new Virginia General Assembly gathered to select a council of state to serve and support Governor Patrick Henry, Madison was chosen as one of the counselors. Naturally, when he assumed this new post the following January, Madison was one of the youngest members of the council. As was a truism throughout his life, this of course didn't preclude Madison from taking on a lion's share of work. In particular, the always vexing task of, quote, supplying troops in an extended war. In a moment of redemption the next April, he was elected to the House of Delegates in Orange County while he was still hard at work in Williamsburg. But as he could not serve in the legislature and on the council at the same time, he remained as one of Henry's counselors until the end of the governor's term. Rather than leave the council at that time, Madison stayed on to serve under the new governor, a man that he likely met in the House of Delegates session in October 1776 and who would come to play a large role in his life from here on out. That's right, dear friends. This is when Thomas Jefferson enters Madison's life in full force. Though the incoming governor was eight years older than Madison, he quickly recognized, quote, the rich resources of his luminous and discriminating mind and of his extensive information and the two became close colleagues. This didn't mean, however, that they were necessarily close friends at this point. Their first partnership ended not too long after it began, as Madison was elected to the Continental Congress on December 14, 1779, by the General Assembly. Madison returned home to Montpelier at this point to study, quote, advanced text on economic theory to aid him in his upcoming work in Congress. On March 18, 1780, he arrived in Philadelphia to assume his seat. Madison quickly recognized the self-defeating nature of Congress's fiscal policy, but as a new congressman, had to bide his time until he could influence it for the better. Slowly but surely, he gained the respect of his colleagues, and just half a year in, his name was already being talked about for a diplomatic posting to a foreign capital. Madison, however, would dismiss any such notions as he would decline all subsequent offers for foreign travel. Though we don't know his reasoning for certain, he did express later in life a concern, quote, that European travel would endanger his health. As we've heard in past series, dear listener, long-distance travel at the time was not for the faint of heart. In November 1780, Madison felt that he was established enough to finally rise and speak on the floor of Congress about the nation's fiscal policy and introduce, quote, a motion to prevent the states from printing any more money, which was one of the factors destabilizing the country's economy. His motion was quickly denounced and pushed aside. Though it was a setback, it did not deter the young congressman from Virginia, though he did suffer from a bout of ill health for the next few months. When he did ready himself to launch another salvo at trying to correct the nation's fiscal woes, he recruited the help of the president of the College of New Jersey, John Witherspoon, who at this point 
was serving alongside Madison in Congress representing New Jersey. When Madison introduced a new 5% tariff on all imports in February 1781, Witherspoon went a step further and put forward, quote, a motion that would empower Congress to regulate all commerce in every state, establishing a new and exclusive federal right to tax all imported goods. While Witherspoon's motion was a step too far and was quickly rejected by Congress, it allowed Madison to come in with a more moderate proposal, quote, that would pass the funds through state governments first, rather than allowing Congress directly to collect the monies. This was acceptable to Congress, which passed Madison's measure and opened up a new revenue stream for the government. Fresh off of this success, Madison a few days later put forward a draft amendment to the Articles of Confederation, which would, in case any state should, quote, refuse or neglect to abide by the determinations of the United States and Congress assembled, authorize Congress to employ the force of the United States as well by sea as by land to compel such state or states to fulfill their federal engagements. There was also a provision in this draft amendment to authorize Congress to cut off all, quote, trade and intercourse with any of these dissenting states if need be. This was a vast expansion of federal authority, one that many at the time had trouble getting behind, especially, but not limited to, his esteemed Virginian colleague, Thomas Jefferson. Rather than express his disapproval of Madison's proposal and potentially create a rupture in their burgeoning friendship, Jefferson simply pretended that the idea didn't exist, despite Madison on numerous occasions writing to him asking whether he had received the draft, and if so, what he thought of it. Ultimately, Madison would let the matter drop, but these ideas of greater federal authority being key to the stability of the nation would permeate in Madison's mind. Singer credited this time in the Continental Congress with Madison developing what Singer pronounced his quote-unquote method of political influence. Singer described Madison's method as composed of the following actions. Quote, find passion in your conscience, focus on the idea, not the man, develop multiple and independent lines of attack, embrace impatience, establish a competitive advantage through preparation, Conquer bad ideas by dividing them. Master your opponent as you master yourself. Push the state to the highest version of itself. Govern the passions. Singer, in his Becoming Madison, asserted that Madison, quote, would implement this method every time he launched a war against a bad idea and erected on the ruins his own ideas. He devised the method intuitively as a replacement for the derisive and imbalanced Socratic method that he had criticized so harshly as a teenage student. He never named it. Indeed, he rarely reflected on his strategies at all. Madison was developing as a political animal of measured and persistent action. In September 1782, an event would happen which would bring Madison and Jefferson back together. Thomas's wife, Martha, passed away. The former governor fell into a depression, and Madison received reports of his state from afar. In order to help him recover from his loss and find new purpose in public service, Madison put forward the idea in Congress of Jefferson being named, quote, as minister plenipotentiary for negotiating peace with Great Britain. Jefferson had been chosen by Congress for this role a year and a half prior, 
but he had declined the honor at that time. Congress approved of the idea of the renewal of Jefferson's original appointment unanimously. By January 1783, Jefferson was in Philadelphia at the same boarding house as Madison, and the two Virginians were able to use the time to partake in shared intellectual pursuits as well as develop a closer personal friendship. That spring, however, Madison's mind would turn to other pursuits as well, namely those of the heart. He had met Kitty Floyd, the daughter of William Floyd, a congressman from New York, a year earlier. But by early 1783, Kitty was now 15, which was at the time seen as a good age for marriage. In his courtship of Kitty, the 32-year-old Madison was encouraged and aided by his wingman, Jefferson. As described by Singer, quote, When Madison was absent from the house, Jefferson sat with Kitty, joking and praising Madison. Though Jefferson would, after a couple of months of waiting in vain for Congress to finalize his appointment, return to Monticello, he continued as the year went on to ask his young friend of how the love affair was going, asserting that, quote, I wished it, i.e., their marriage, to be so, as it would give me a neighbor whose worth I rank high. Madison had high hopes. He was nearing the end of his term in Congress and envisioned returning home with a new bride. When Congressman Floyd and his family departed for New York on April 29th, Floyd's colleague from Virginia took a break from his work in Congress and rode with them. Unfortunately, that summer brought events which broke Madison out of the happy spell of spring. In mid-June, Congress was faced with a crowd of 300 angry, drunken men who kept them trapped for three hours as they surrounded the State House, demanding payment due to them. Due to concerns of a repeat performance, or worse, and despite Madison's objections to the decision, Congress agreed to depart from Philadelphia and reassemble in Princeton, New Jersey. To their chagrin, when they reassembled in Princeton a few days later, there wasn't a quorum, so the work of Congress was forced to be put on hold. Madison bemoaned the weakness of Congress's resolve at this point and was further disheartened when, in September, the legislature chose to, quote, pardon the sergeants who led the revolt. By that point, though, he was accustomed to disappointment, as Madison's heart had already been broken. In August 1783, Madison received a letter from Kitty Floyd in which she, as described by Singer, quote, grotesquely ended their engagement. Jefferson empathized with his younger friend when he heard the news and wrote that, quote, I sincerely lament the misadventure which has happened from whatever cause it may have happened. He reassured him that, quote, the world still presents the same and many other resources of happiness. To Madison at this point, though, things did look rather bleak, both personally and professionally. The national government was at one of its lowest ebbs to date, and Madison had no means to impact its course as his term of office was at its end. Presenting a ray of hope in the darkness, though, was that his friend Jefferson had been chosen as his successor and thus traveled to Philadelphia to join Madison. The two then traveled to Annapolis, Maryland, where Congress was scheduled to meet. Without a quorum in Congress and no reason for him to stay, Madison finally made his way back home to Montpelier after three and a half years away. With his younger siblings coming of age and marrying, he would find his family homestead filled with more relations than ever before, while he remained still a bachelor. In terms of his political career, 
Madison would rebound that spring, winning an easy election to return as a delegate to the state legislature. Later in the year, Madison would travel north once more, first to Philadelphia, before meeting up with the Marquis de Lafayette in Baltimore. Lafayette asked Madison to join him for a three-week trip to Fort Stanwyck in New York to witness negotiations with the Haudenosaunee, and Madison, still trying to find his way after a challenging time the year prior, embraced the opportunity. In November 1784, upon his return to Richmond for the next session of the Virginia House of Delegates, Madison would find only more disappointment as his fellow delegate, the former governor under whom he had served, Patrick Henry, introduced a bill to assess a tax which would support Christian churches. Madison had previously held a respect for Henry and had, earlier in the year, entertained the notion that Henry might be open to aiding him in a push for a more progressive constitution for the state of Virginia. Now, it was confirmed that Henry was set in more conservative ways. Though Jefferson saw no way forward for Madison in Virginia with Henry's dominance of state politics and proposed that Madison join him in France where, by this point, he had finally begun his diplomatic stint in that country, Madison had other plans. After temporarily waylaying Henry's proposed tax, along with a brief romantic interlude in Orange County, which seemed to have fizzled shortly after it started, Madison returned to the Virginia House of Delegates in the fall, ready to take on Patrick Henry and his bill. In this session, Madison had a decided advantage over Henry, namely that Henry was no longer a member of the state legislature. Henry had been elected as governor to succeed Benjamin Harrison and thus could not engage Madison in a debate on the House floor. Thus, on October 31, 1785, Madison rose to speak to the chamber. One by one in this speech, he introduced 118 proposed bills to the House of Delegates. That's right, dear friends, 118 bills. Madison was going for the gusto. These bills, quote, ranged from modernizing the standard of care for the insane to giving the criminally accused the right to a trial of their peers to creating the position of lieutenant governor in case the governor died or left office. Closest to his heart, though, was the first one that he introduced, an act for religious freedom. Through Madison's efforts, in less than three weeks, 36 of his 118 bills had been passed by the state legislature. As noted by one of his colleagues, quote, he, Madison, has astonished mankind and has, by means perfectly constitutional, become almost a dictator. His influence alone has carried half the revised code. This was not enough for Madison, though. Not only were these reforms not far-reaching enough for Virginia, but Madison realized that reform was needed for the rapidly disintegrating Confederation government of the United States. Luckily for Madison and the nation, calls were increasing for conferences to address the problems of the nation, and the Virginian delegate aimed to be included in that work. Madison's return to the national stage will have to wait until the next episode, however, for our time together is drawing to a close. Before we part, though, I do have a few thanks to extend. Thanks again to Sean of the American History Podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. And be sure to check out his podcast as soon as you're done with this episode. Special thanks to Christian Perry for his audio editing work on this episode. 
If you'd like to get Christian's assistance with your podcast or next audio project, check out his website at yourpodcastpal, all one word, dot com. Special thanks to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this episode. For links to the American History Podcast, Your Podcast Pal, or the Itinerant Band, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. There, you can also find the sources used for this episode, links to past episodes, and information on how you, yes, you, dear listener, can support the podcast. Speaking of, I had a recent five-star review on Apple Podcasts that I want to acknowledge. In a review entitled, Informative and Passionate, Phantom Jukebox Dakota wrote the following, quote, Presidencies of the United States is probably one of the most organized and structured podcasts I've heard to date. Jerry is well-spoken, passionate about his content, and I've learned a lot about history since I've started listening. I recommend it to anyone who is remotely interested in American history. Thank you so much for your kind words, and thanks to all of you who have taken the time to leave a rating and review. Those really help to let others know why they should join us on our journey through presidential history. And I hope all of you will keep with us on this journey as we venture forth through the Madison presidency. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can connect with me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.